Welcome to From the Ground Up with Mark Weller. We're back for part two of Development 101 with Steve Siegel and Jeff Baker. If you didn't have a chance to listen to the last episode, please go back and check it out. Without further ado, let's get right into it. So Jeff, why don't you continue on with your process from there? Yeah, sure. So once you once you own the property and as you start that design process that I was describing before, you know, you would have had your perform established by now, you would have your business plan, and now you're ready to take it into the, the design phase. So if you say, I think we should build a 200-unit apartment building, I think at $3 a square foot in rent, I think this is going to work in this specific area. From there, you develop your next steps and, you know, you take it through the entitlement process. After that's done, you that requires different level of design. You basically work through the, the concept design phase, the schematic drawing phase, the design development phase, and eventually up to construction drawings, which is what you would eventually take out to bid through a general contractor. And that's what we have, you know, those examples on Port Covington, those are the groups we work with. Those are the Clark Constructions, the, the Wayne Turners, uh, Bazudo, and, and uh, CBG. Those are the groups that we have chosen, um, all excellent general contractors. There's tons of them around the country, but the process is typically very similar. There's different ways to structure those contracts in many ways, but across the, the, the spectrum, you're always basically starting from a broad stroke conceptual idea and then honing in on uh, what that building actually wants to be. Then as you get more and more specific, as you get to those construction drawing phases with, you know, you're, you start with a concept design package that's 20 pages, that's mostly pictures, um, and you slowly work your way to construction drawings with a specifications book that can be thousands and thousands of pages which is eventually what the contractor bids on and will agree to do it for a certain price. And then they, you get to an agreement with that general contractor, typically under something called a GMP, um, a guaranteed maximum price contract, and that's what they agree to build it for. And then the you enter in the next phase, executing into that construction. Um, ahead of that, you know, one of the biggest elements of real estate development is how you pay for that project. Um, and there's a ton of different ways to do that. Some companies that are a huge, um, you know, JBG Smith now, for example, are where I used to work, they're a REIT. So they typically fund most of their deals through um, equity, um, since they're a public company. Um, other companies can, you know, fund through, you know, a typical developer might put in very little money, but then find um, several other equity partners. Um, and then, you know, a common use um, of, of funding construction in particular is the, the use of construction debt. Um, and that's, you know, we, we do that in Port Covington. That's very common on multiple projects. So how you fill out your capital stack to build and pay for the entire project is very investor uh, dependent. And it really depends. Um, it depends on your hold period, how long you want to own the building. It depends on, you know, your financial wherewithal as, as the developer. Um, all types of factors. There's a lot to go into that decision alone. I mean, that could be its own show for us. So that could certainly you could go in that for quite some time. Before we uh, go down the the rabbit hole here, let, I want to ask a quick question, and either one of you can answer. But you know, when you're going through the pre-development phase and you're pricing out everything, and and you're getting pricing from construction companies, but then you don't get to the GMP, the guaranteed maximum price, until later. Talk about how you can actually launch a project before you know what it's going to cost exactly. And what, how do you make up the difference there if it's way off? Well, typically, um, you know, it, it's it's rare that you would start construction on a project unless you had were pretty pretty far down the, the road in terms of design. 
typically how you approach it through the design process is every every set of drawings that you receive, you would do a price check, typically with a, one general contractor, maybe maybe multiple. So at those various design phases, at schematic design, you do a price check. At design development, you have a price check. At some you know 50% construction drawings, you maybe do another price check. It's common to go to GMP, typically around that 85% construction drawing um, to 100% construction drawing phase. Um, you know, I think it's some people, depending on, you know, your time, if you need to really go quickly, you could definitely take some additional risk by going to a contract based on an earlier drawing set. But the more you put into that drawing set, the clearer things are, it protects you and it protects your general contractor and avoids arguments down the road on who should do what. That's a great explanation. Keep going. <laughs> well, that, you know, I think just, uh, just anecdotally, I think it's, it's, you know, on Port Covington, you know, we had a, um, a prolonged timeline due to the COVID-19, uh, you know, pandemic. And, you know, during that time, it was really interesting. It was, you know, obviously it was negative in many ways, um, just from a timing aspect. We wish we could have started the project earlier. But I think one of the most important things we chose to do as a team during that time was take those construction drawings and get them to absolute perfection to 100% CDs. And in many ways, it's their... If it, if it was possible, they'd be higher than 100% construction drawings. But those drawings are extremely, extremely well-defined. And that's probably part of the reason our construction is going so well, why we're doing so well on our schedule and budget. Um, so, you know, some people, depending on what your time is, don't have the luxury to wait that long. We, unfortunately, were forced to delay the start of the project um, just due to outside factors. But during that time, we really made up for it and used that time to get us to additional level of clarity on those drawings, which is now the reason, probably, uh, part of the reason the construction is going so well. So in class, you'd get a gold star for using time wisely. Yes, 100%. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, and that, that's really the vertical. You know, we did, we did start the horizontal um, back in 2019 to... Uh, just to try and make up time, we weren't ready, you know, to go vertical. We were, um, we were trying to build momentum. We were trying to, uh, you know, to get out ahead of it and do some of the deep utility work and some of the, some of the larger infrastructure work. Um, but then we had to, um, you know, when COVID nineteen hit, we we uh, we had to take a pause there um, and do everything Jeff said, and that that was a really valuable time uh, to to get our ducks in a row and get things straight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think um, it's it's just a good use of time. Um, so, you know, I think during the the construction phase, I think the next step is once you get to that GMP, um, that you know, I, I'll take a step back actually. At once you get to that final construction drawing phase, you can you know typically you can either choose to take it out to bid, and you can use multiple general contractors, and you can say we'd like to run a formal process and. They can choose to bid on this, and then you typically would proceed with the uh, general contractor with the best package, typically the lowest price, oftentimes the, the the most certainty that they could execute at that price. Or in many cases, you can say, we want to work with, a, you know, partner with a general contractor along the entire design stage. We want to agree to mutually set a budget, and if we hit that budget at the end of the uh, end of the design process, we'll take your we'll work with your team. Um, and, and work on this project together. And that's how we approached it at uh, Port Covington. That is typically how, how Weller um, at our company, we like to approach it. I think it's a much more partner um, forward type of strategy. And I think it, you know, 
the general contractors appreciate it because there's clarity. They're willing to spend much more time up front during with your team on the design process. And that protects the, the developer and the, the ownership at the end of the day as well because you have them involved throughout that entire process, making suggestions, making sure you know, you're designing something that you can actually build. At the end of the day, it's, it's a much more win-win execution if you're able to uh, go that route. You talked about the lowest bid uh, and then the, um, you know, the likelihood of uh, succeeding on that low bid. Talk about that for a second because you, know, you hear story, horror stories of contractors who give the low bid and then they end up totally running through the budget. And Talk about how that works. How do you make sure that they keep to the price and how, how does all that unfold? Sure. So when a, when a, um, a con- general contractor submits their bid, they also submit with um, a, a very, very specific um, set of qualifications, meaning we will bid X if the following facts are true. And there'll be a pages and pages of qualifications that are actually would be part of your contract. So part of the most important process and what our construction team is incredible at reviewing is to making sure those qualifications associated with that number are 100% true and is what is likely to happen. In an example where you do hear those horror stories is when some contractor will come in with a low bid that they assume likely they actually won't um, hit. But in those qualifications, they typically would exclude something that they know is likely to happen. So at the end of the day, contractually, there's going to be what you'd call a change order, which is an add to the contract. And because the general contractor qualified that that was not part of their contract, at that point, the developer would be responsible for that cost. So all up front during that GMP process, when you're selecting contractors, you need to be reviewing those like a hawk to make sure you're on the same page with your general contractor. There isn't any scope gap in terms of something that you would have to fund later. Inherently, there's always some element of that. That's why you hold typically hold some level of developer contingency. But during that phase, you need to make sure that all of those drawings are captured within that contract, that they are totally married together, and that you're, uh, that protects both the developer and the general contractor from any issues down the road. Does so, that does that responsibility fall to you to catch that or to like your legal team or a combination? Under Weller, our, that's our construction team. And, you know, I think the, the, our construction team is e- extremely involved during the upfront development process. Um, it's a combination, tip, you know, different shops are set up in different ways between, uh, you know, a upfront developer, different strategies with construction. On our t- side, that was a total team effort between our development team and all, our construction team, which is in managing that architect and managing that general contractor, and the two have to be totally intertwined. Um, so, you know, it's the answer is both. But from a legal perspective as well, there's a huge component um, just on, you know, if there is a dispute, how do you handle that down the road? And again, that's, you know, general contractors and developers never want to get into an argument. You hear horror stories of how that happens it's a lose-lose in any instance. When a construction project stops, it's it's just bad. It will always cost more money to resume it, and it's not in anyone's best interest to go that road. So having just a thorough review from both parties and extreme clarity during that process is how you address that. Follow that under, you know, measure twice and cut once. I think that's uh, exactly. one of our favorite sayings. And just making sure that everything's shored up on the front end will alleviate a lot of headaches and possibly uh, legal disputes as well on the back end. Exactly. So continue on. This is great. Sure. So once you um, 
once you get to a GMP with a Jeff's kind of like that toy. You pull the string on the back <laughs> and you just let him go. <laughs> Next. So once you uh, once you get to that GMP contract um, and assuming you have your 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 financing fully lined up, which we which we mentioned before, um, that is when you officially give your general contractor a official notice to proceed. Um, and that's when they begin construction. So, you know, a construction on different asset types in different areas is totally dependent on the site. Um, you know, in many instances, in many instances, you're going sig- uh, significantly below grade. In many instances, you have to do environmental remediation if there was, you know, you know, something before there that contaminated the soil. Um, and there's a lot of things underground that occur, whether you're, you're, you know, different elements of how you um, make the building stable with the structure. Um, so that in many ways, your, your biggest element of risk is actually below grade because that's, you know, the biggest unknown. So during the construction process, the typical order is, you know, you demolish or remediate anything that's there. You begin with your structural work and your foundations, either underground or if you're building it below grade, some, maybe some underground uh, foundations um, and then some, um, something typically on the ground. And then you start your above grade building, and that's when you start your structure. You eventually, you know, keep building up. There's obviously multiple different types of buildings that cost different factors. Um, which one you choose depends on the type of building and where you are. There could be a, a stick building, a concrete building, a steel building. Um, there's new versions of um, a, a wood that are interesting. One called CLT. That's an interesting thing. That's that's um, something to, to look at. Um, and there's and combinations of product types too. You know, different types of construction. Definitely, definitely mix, mix those types. Yeah, you can you can mix them, and it's all about um, you know, in, in in many ways, it's a giant math equation to um, solve to to what works for you and what gets you that return your investor requires. Um, so you know, once you top out your construction, that's when the you know, and you get your windows and framing in. That's when you would begin the interior build out on an office building or a retail building, typically you're only building to something what you'd call a corn shell delivery. Um, and that's, you know, in many, in many ways, that's just what it sounds like. It's building a concrete, um, you know, shell and then not touching the interiors. And that's because you'd be trying to lease those spaces, um, you know, during that construction period or sometimes earlier to office tenants, to retail tenants, um, and, and, you know, they will want to do either um, pick their own build-out or actually perform their own build-out. Whereas on a residential building, an apartment building, or a condo building, or a hotel, you're the one performing that build-out because you've already designed those interior finishes. And the responsibility is on you to pick out what you think is the mm-hmm. best design um, for to target that market or for a hotel if it's, you know, it could be dependent on what hotel operator. If you're building a Marriott, they have standard finishes. If you're building a different type, they would have their own as well. So, um, so Jeff, talk, talk a little bit about, I think it'd be helpful for people to hear a little bit about placemaking, you know, and how, you know, retail merchandising plan works and how we kind of approached it, for example, in Port Covington and generally. Um, I think that would be, uh, that'd be helpful to hear. Yeah, it's a, I, I think that's a great question. And, um, you know, I think a lot of people have their own definition of placemaking. Um, it's, it's kind of a broad stroke word, but I think, you know, at the simplest of terms, it's, it's how to create a special place. Um, and I think the main way we, we view that we can achieve that is through high-end design and targeted locations, uh, through the integra- integration of public and private spaces, and through highly strategic and amenitized retail. Um, you know, I think from 
our aspect specifically on the retail, um, you know, how you do that is you, you typically would target, you know, two to three, what you'd call anchor tenants that can really draw um, a large amount of people to a project, you know, and if you're building a building in downtown New York City, placemaking is a little less important because that area is already totally amenitized. You know, you could just build an office building and it'll get leased up pretty easily. But, you know, for Port Covington, for example, we're creating a new destination. It's an entirely new neighborhood. Um, so you need, you know, you really have to be very intentional about what that retail wants to be. How do you draw people there, particularly from other cities? And how do you need to come up with a very strategic merchandising plan, which which is basically what retail you want in what location. So for Port Covington, you know, we almost have 100,000 square feet of retail in our first phase. So how we did that um, from a merchandising perspective is we worked with our retail team. We have a really, really strong team led by um, Devit Company and uh, Group Canadev. Um, we went space by space and said, what does this space want to be? Should it be, you know, a pharmacy? Should this be a restaurant? Should this be a fast casual concept? And where's the most logical uh, place to locate them within the project? Um, and, the, you know, that's also, also equally important to integrate with, you know, how does this concept in a, in, interplay with this public park? Or how do we draw these people down to the water? Or how does this orient with our building design? So from our perspective on the retail during the design process as well, we are very intentional to give ourselves almost um, as much flexibility as humanely possible because during that retail leasing process, a lot of tenants will ask for specific things and you want to be able to accommodate them, um, you know, within your plan. So I think, you know, from our perspective, the, how you would achieve that, the, the overall placemaking thesis is you you target two to three anchor tenants and then once you you get those in place, then you start drafting what you'd refer to as the inline retail as a follow-up and then, you you know, once that energy is created, people are excited to be there. And then you have, you know, your pick. You know, there's already excitement there. You have awesome tenants. There's foot traffic. And then the rest of the people will, will want to be there. And, you know, then it's Port Covington phase two. There's only further excitement. And talk more. You mentioned the, the public spaces uh, interweaving with the private spaces. And you know, so you talked about the retail. Now talk about those public spaces. What are those want to be? not specifically in Port Covington, but just generally speaking, how do you view those? Yeah. And I think, you know, it, it, again, it, it really depends on the space, but in, you know, in many ways you need to think about um, how do parks, how do roads, you know, if you have the opportunity, can you, you know, modify your sidewalks? One of the most important things for retail is outdoor seating. Um, how can you integrate that into the public sphere? It's a really, you know, it's a, it's a very, interesting gap to blend the private, which being the, the private retailer with the public. And, you know, some of the best examples of retail across the country are where you can pretty much not tell the, the difference between those two because they're so seamlessly integrated. Um, and the best example of, you know, that is when you're on the water. So I think, you know, why we're so bullish on Port Covington specifically on the retail is because there's, there's a huge integration with the water. There's tons of public open green space. And frankly, there's opportunities where you don't have to spend money as well. You can, you know, if you're out there, you know, in a park, you can, you can relax. If you choose to go grab a coffee, you can do that. But it's also you have the opportunity to just uh, enjoy in, you know, a walkable neighborhood on beautiful streets. There's beautiful landscaping. And you can just, uh, you know, choose to engage with the retail or not. How important would you say, you know, getting the retail place right is how important is the placemaking, you know, for example, for the success of the project and the value, 
you know, that, that can be created there? Uh, I think it's the most important thing. You know, I think from our development approach at Weller is, you know, we were not trying to just maximize um, profits off the retail. I think we'd prefer to to actually not make as much money on the retail if we can have the, the right use there. And I think where you really, um, you know, succeed as a developer is if you have the, the, the right mix of retail, your apartment, uh, people want to live there, people want to work there. And that's where you, you know, that's, in a project of, you know, a million square feet, your retail might only be 50,000 square feet. So you should be much more intentional about your retail and how you design it, how you merchandise it, the type of tenants that you get there, how they integrate with those sidewalks, with the green spaces, and then all of the uh, remaining things will kind of solve themselves in terms of people wanting to live there and people wanting to work. And the placemaking thesis is not only to make it, you know, a better place for the people who are living and working there, um, and living there, but also the people who are traveling as a destination to, to go there and it drums up more interest in general from the region or nationally as well. And, and how, how do you view that? I mean, is it critical that these places are national destinations? Do you want them to be, or are they more to service the people that live, work and, and play there? I think the short answer is both. Um, you know, attracting a national audience is in, through retail can sometimes be difficult, and you know, it, it it isn't always necessary. Obviously, if you create a really special place, there's always going to be people willing to move uh, cities, and people, you know, you see that happening across the board right now. There's there's fundamental shifts in where people are moving, and a lot of that is is focused on standard of living and people in a post-COVID environment, choosing different locations where they, they want to be for the future. So I think a lot of that is clearly happening already. Um, you know, I think from a from a retail mix, I think, you, you know, you want to have some element of local, some element of regional, and some element of national, and that you want to have diversification across those uses. Um, so you want to have, you know, in, in Port Covington, you want to be, you know, totally integrated with the surrounding communities and have that special local retail. But at the same time, you want to be Pulling people from D.C., from Philadelphia, from New York, you want to bring in those national retailers that can that can have that impact as well. So I think, you know, the most important thing is you have a diversified um, and, and very intentional retail mix. It's not all food and beverage. It's not all, you know, soft goods. It, you have to have across the board, um, you know, all of those different uses. And that's why in Port Covington, you know, we have a lot of retail in our first phase. We are very intentional about that in our design we moved um, all of the, we, you know, we don't have above grade parking in, in several of our buildings with the intent, and that was very intentional. So we can have that retail, uh, retail presence along the ground floor. And that's always that someone wants to be. When you look out your window, you don't want to see a, a, an empty parking garage. You'd like to see people streaming down the streets, shopping, uh, sitting in the park, et cetera. And also the general structure of the buildings, if they include parking, it just takes up uh, first floor retail space with ramps and, and, you know, parking, et cetera. Exactly. And that's, you know, you see that across many cities, that's, that's not good design. And obviously many people, there's no other way, way to put the parking, but if you have the flexibility to, um, hide the parking in many ways, you, you know, you can put retail along the vast majority of your building edges. Um, and that's what we have. And, you know, that creates a really special place. And then the more intentional you get with it, uh, you can start drawing people towards the public spaces you're building as well as the water. And then that's exactly what, why people want to be in that environment. Okay. So, you know, we're, we're well into vertical construction. Um, 
you know, construction's underway. You've secured all the GMPs. Your construction team is working. The buildings are going vertical. Let's keep going in the process from there. Sure. So, in you know, at this point, it starts to depend by what asset type you're building. Then office or retail building, once you deliver that corn shell, you know, your, your, responsibilities, your responsibility is to lease that building. Um, so, you know, in an office building, if you lease it during your construction period, there's a point which the, that office tenant or that retail tenant can, can come into the building while you're still under construction and begin their build out with the intent of them opening right around that time that the building is finished as a whole. Um, other times, you know, you'll, you'll have about 50% of your office lease, 75, it really depends. Um, and then, you know, as you open, you'll continue to lease the building once it's finished. On those multifamily buildings, um, you know, you eventually, once you're finished with the building, you'll turn it over to your, your, um, a property manager. And that's when they do the residential leasing and there's different efforts for that. Um, and then on a hotel building and a, a similar process in which you turn it over to the hotel operator so they can start advertising and uh, taking room reservations. And on the condo, that's probably the most complex um, in that you are turning it over to a condo board. So in the developer's aspect, you start with 100% ownership of a condo. And then as you sell units, you slowly uh, dilute yourself with the intent of eventually owning nothing. Um, and so that's a, a very, very difficult process. Condos are typically one of the riskiest uh, assets to develop for a, a variety of reasons. But the developer's goal is to develop that condo, slowly sell units, and then eventually wane themselves out of the deal entirely. So then, you you know, eventually we work through the process to where we get to building completion. Um, and, and we've got a place. And, um, you know, that place is now open, whether it's 50% pre-leased or you know, uh, the residential might be, you know, 75% full or, or what have you. Um, it's on its way towards stabilization, which is fully lease being fully leased. Um, talk about like what happens then. And Steve, maybe you take this one, you know, you open up the buildings, you open up the neighborhood, um, talk about how you go from being the developer to, you know, it, the project's done and you turn it over, um, talk about, you know, property management and then, you know, in our case, a bid uh, taking over, kind of running the, the, the area or the neighborhood. Just talk about that process a little bit. Yeah, I mean, at that point, it becomes a management game, right? It's, it's both asset management, property management. Um, you know, in the, in the case of, you know, the, the example you gave where a bid comes in, uh, there's a lot of collaboration with the building ownership to. So that's a business improvement district. That's right. Yeah. The, the bid stands for business improvement district. The bid has a lot of responsibilities, you know, with respect to added site security, uh, programming of events and the like. Um, and that's, you know, the, the business improvement district is, is just a, a group of building owners basically that, um, that are part of it, uh, and, and, um, you know, kind of have influence over how that bid operates and, what kind of events happen and how the security works and how cleaning up the streets works and all that stuff in the common areas, for example. But yeah, it's, it's really about asset management at that point. Um, it's, it's about keeping your tenants happy. It's about tenant retention. It's about, um, you know, making sure that your buildings are occupied and, uh, um, you know, maintained properly and that your property manager is doing their job, you know, at the end of the day. And that's sort of the asset management side of it. It's, you know, making decisions that maximize the value of the asset to the investor and, um, you know, and, and make, you know, continue to keep the place great and to keep that value proposition intact. 
you know, for your tenants. Yeah. And I think, um, just, just to add on to that, you know, and again, it really depends on what the ownership structure of each building is, but at many points, once that is successful, which is referred to as once the building is stabilized, um, typically that can happen anywhere between 12 months to 18 months after that building delivers. But that means typically the building, whether it be an office building or uh, an apartment building, is that building is fully leased. And, you know, depending on what that developer structure is, that's typically the time they would look to either refinance their construction loan if they have one on the project, or in in many instances, they'll choose to sell the building um, because that would take the, as I mentioned before, that would be an opportunistic real estate asset, meaning a development opportunity. And now that the asset doesn't have any risk left on it, it would turn into a core asset depending on where it is. And the developer would say, I can generate a higher, um, I can generate a higher sale price. I created value by taking this through the entitlement design and construction phase and leasing phase. And now this building is entirely um, a different risk profile and I deserve to be rewarded for that. So in many instances, that's when the developer would choose to either refinance their, their loan or they would choose to sell the building at that time. Depending on if it's a if it's a long term holder, you know the the Port Covington deal is a bit of a long term longer term hold. They would choose to hold that asset for a longer period of time. Um, but on, on many deals, uh, a typical developer structure, you would choose to to almost always sell that asset um, so you can get your best return on that building. Well, that's great. This is excellent information. And, and Jeff, I want to ask you one more question before we break. Um, every episode, we try and feature a, a rising tide moment. It's rising tide dun, moment. Dun, dun, dun. An example of something in your corner of the world that uh, is uplifting others or just making a difference in the community or in the industry. Um, do you have a rising tide moment you could share with us? Yeah, sure. I think um, one that easily comes to mind is just on, on the Port Covington deal. Um, you know, we, we really have um, engaged a, a large number of, of primarily smaller um, consultants. Um, a lot of them are, are women-owned or minority-owned. Um, and a lot of, you know, ones we haven't worked with before, to be honest. And the, the, the process is just, and the experience has been fantastic. Um, they, they have a breadth of talent. And, you know, in many ways, it's, it's very easy to use the, the same consultant base that you're consultant to, but on the port uh, that you're, you're accustomed to. But on the Port Covington project, you know, we, we really have engaged a lot of newer consultants um, that a lot of them are smaller. And, you know, as you can see by how the project's going, it's been a massive success. And it's it's very powerful to um, see these smaller groups um, succeed. And hopefully, you know, Port Covington can be a massive resume builder for them. And as they move on to um, either phase two of Port Covington or, or another project, um, you know, they, they are much more well-equipped to handle that and, um, you know, it'll get them more work. So I think it's an incredibly exciting process. And that's a theme that we've heard before uh, from others who have come on, um, you know, talking about this project in particular and, and something that we're all very proud um, that we can point to uh, something that we're doing to lift up, you know, smaller businesses and other businesses. And so, Good work there and, and uh, keep charging ahead on that. And we'll look forward to, you know, bringing those, that type of narrative and that type of approach to all the projects that we work on. And I think it just makes uh, makes the whole industry better. So, does. Uh, well, thanks, guys. This was definitely Development 101. Very helpful information. Um, gave us a lot of topics that we can kind of dive into as, as separate podcasts as well. So 
We hope this brings a lot of value to our listeners, even even if the takeaway is just one new fact or acronym or, or uh, description that you learned. Um, but be sure to think about that when you're driving on 95 past Port Covington and seeing those buildings up in the air. So thanks, Jeff, uh, for being here as our featured guest this week. Always fun talking to you. Happy to be here. You did a great job. And uh, it was just a wealth of information. So thanks. So uh, thank you very much for listening to our educational series, Development 101. We had fun doing it and hope you enjoyed listening. Uh, thanks to Steve Siegel for sitting in again for Mark Weller, being for, for being a great host these last few weeks. So thanks a lot, Steve. Did you have fun? I did. I enjoyed it. It's right. always great being here with you, Matt. And uh, obviously, it's great being here with such development talent like Jeff. Stay tuned for more guests from all over the real estate industry in the future. We really want to feature all, all walks of life, all, all tenants of the industry. So let us know if there's something that you, you know, want us to talk about. Feel free to reach out to us on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn at Weller Development. I'm Matt Rienzo, and he's Steve Siegel sitting in for Mark Weller. Keep building, people.